Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wab podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're talking about Excalibur 46, Colin the Barbarian. That's right, Colin. He is finally back in the 616 and out for blood until he's not. Excalibur number 46 was originally published in January 1992, and the creative team is Alan Davis on writing and pencils, Mark Farmer on inks, Linus Oliver on colors, Michael Heisler on letters, and Terry Cavanaugh on editing. Excalibur. Is it true? Take it quickly! Hello again, everyone. As I know, most of you are probably very aware by now. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I like talking about sex and gender in comics and 80s action adventure television, but nobody ever asks me about 80s TV, which is a shame because my thoughts on the A-Team are very deep and very numerous. Maybe we'll get a chance to talk about it someday. But I made my bet as Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, and he's probably a less problematic character than Templeton Peck, so it's probably a good call. Um, I am joined, as always, by Mav, reintroduce the listeners to your deal. You completely threw me as now. <laughs> I, I, I was not expecting that. And now I want nothing more than to talk about Templeton Peck for um, oh boy. <laughs> the next hour. I have so many thoughts on 18. Oh boy. <laughs> um, that, that said, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav. I am an instructor of English lit and cultural studies and composition studies now. This new job that I'm starting or that I have started by the time people listen to this. This is my last weekend of freeness um, before <laughs> before um, my working for three different universities kicks back into high gear, which will have happened by the time people listen to this. So I'm in hell, people. You know, <laughs> but I sound great because I'm not in hell right now. But when I'm not doing that, when I'm not teaching people to write or read or, you know, think deep thoughts about literature, I spend my time thinking deep thoughts about literature on this and <laughs> other podcasts um, uh, called uh, Vox Popcast, where 
I talk about depictions of race and gender and sexuality and um, class in comic books and movies and things like that. Oh, the other show is called Fox Podcast. Look, look me up. <laughs> it's in the show notes. Um, Andrew, I entreat you to remind our lovely listeners of your exploits. Hey, I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. John's University and project lead for the Claremont Run. Uh, today's reading actually hit home for me as start of term has me feeling a bit like a withered old man kept alive in chains <laughs> to perform miracles. For corrupt masters. I'm also basically just living at this point to provide exposition to beautiful backpackers whose coming will signal both my liberation and the end of my long, sad journey. I don't know when they're coming for me, but I'm feeling ready to gaze upon the open sky. That was beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> oh my god, I don't even know. I can't, I can't recover from that. Start of term is difficult. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We are joined this week by a guest I've been wanting to have on the show for quite a while now um, to talk about their affection for Rachel Summers and the Excalibur world in general. The pod is delighted to welcome Alexa Lee Hassan. Welcome, Alexa. Hi, I am feeling so very lucky that I am actually not teaching this coming semester. Um, Aww. I have... <laughs> You're my hero. <laughs> If it makes you feel better, instead, I have a five-year-old who is at home um, mm. indefinitely with COVID school oh. openings and closures. So, oh, sorry, not, yeah. not total freedom, but a lot better than trying to do both at once. We're often working around those things. Um, I'll tell our listeners a little bit more about you, Alexa. So Alexa Lee Hassan is a former elementary school teacher and current learning sciences PhD student and mathematics teacher educator at the University of Illinois at Chicago. A lifelong comics lover, they enjoy fanish discussions with family, friends, and students. Their goal for 2022 is to finish and defend their dissertation, which is sadly quite unrelated to Excalibur. Our condolences, Alexa. <laughs> it's never too late. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Okay, so Alexa, I'm happy to give you as much space as you'd like to sound off on Rachel today, but let's start with your Excalibur origin story. So I believe from conversations that we've had that you've been a fan of this series for many years, but when did you first discover it? Yeah, so my experience with comics really started from my dad and his collection. Mm. And I realized when I saw the dates on this current arc that I believe Excalibur starting when this art came out was my first comics experience. My oh, father wow. read them to me. He, and because his collection is very, he largely picked comics based on the art. So for Excalibur, he pretty much only bought Davis issues. So we have the chunk that's Claremont and Davis from the beginning, a handful here and there from the cross time caper, and then nothing before this Alan Davis arc. So the earlier ones I was still too young for, but 1991, Alan Davis comes back. I was five and my dad read me Excalibur. So this is like, you, you all talk so frequently about like, this is so different from other comics. And I'm like, no, this is my formative comics experience. <laughs> this is all comics have or should have more female characters than male characters and incredibly powerful female characters and preferably Nightcrawler as well. <laughs> like... I love that. I mean, did you become kind of a comics reader as you got a little bit older? Yeah, so I, um, my dad's collection lived in our basement, and I read a lot of them as I got older more independently, read some of the stuff that was certainly more complex and intense as I got older, and then kind of fell off for a while in college and 
got back into it as an adult when I was actually working at the school. And so I was reading stuff on my own, reading more like old Vertigo books or a wider variety of stuff that wasn't just Marvel. And then I also did some collecting and started pulling stuff specifically to share with the students that I was working with. I had a role for a long time that wasn't like a classroom teacher, but I was seeing students across grade levels. And so I created like a library that was trying to choose books with a more diverse range of characters because the school I was working with was almost entirely black students and many of them were familiar with like Spider-Man and Batman and Superman from TV shows, movies, etc. But being like, oh, Bat- like you've seen Spider-Man, let's read Miles Morales before Spider-Verse came out. And then like when Spider-Verse came out, it definitely blew their minds. Very cool. Well, I mean, I'll ask you the question that I've been asking people when I know that they've been longtime fans of Excalibur, which is why, to your mind, is this series worth revisiting? I know you've been listening to the podcast since the beginning and I think enjoying it and like, you know, enjoying revisiting this series. So why, to your mind, is it worth revisiting? I don't know that I have a good answer for that because it's one of those things that's like too formative to Mm -hmm. me growing up that I don't have I think I personally have a hard time judging like how where where is this quality and where is this just like so fundamental to me that I can't say if it's good or bad it's just like how things should be yeah that makes sense though because that is that is an answer because I mean so many people have been coming back to us you know by telling us that this comic book was so formative so maybe that is the answer and it's certainly where I think I've loved the podcast and seeing people's comments on stuff online as well is just like it's something I grew up with, but certainly like nobody else that I knew or had ever talked to grew up with. Um, And so getting to see it through other people's eyes and from a like more broad perspective and some of the analytical lenses that y'all bring has been really lovely. I mean, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but I guess people have left us comments like this. So I guess I'm not really doing that, but just that people are like, I was obsessed with this series and it was so formative for me and it meant so much for me. And I thought it was just me. But then you realize that so many people felt that way and, you know, some similar in some different ways, you know, depending on, you know, sort of the ways that we connected with it and everything. And that's been so fascinating for us. I know, like we've talked about that before, just especially once we've started the Davis era and so many people have come to us and, you know, when the episode um, on Excalibur 42 came out and we're like, this was my run of comics. And I wasn't expecting that. I was sort of expecting that people were going to be more attached to the Claremont era of comics, but a lot of people, it's this run of comics. Um, let me ask you about Rachel Summers slash Gray a little bit, Alexa, because you've left some really thoughtful comments on our website when we still had comments on our website. We're working on it. Um, <laughs> hopefully by the time this episode comes out, that will be fixed. But um, but yeah, I mean, what kind of draws you to Rachel as a character? And I know that's going to be a huge, huge question, but um, yeah, I'll just put it that way. What draws you to Rachel? Why is she a great character for you? Okay. And I will try to like not ramble indefinitely. Oh no, feel free. I'm happy. We have we have so many listeners who are huge racial fans. I'm sure they are very happy to talk about it indefinitely. Well, and part of me is like I I will say I am I was not a fan of the Rachel Gray uh, Mm. era of things, Um, and I'm not caught up on recent stuff. So for me, like my Rachel in my head is very much the X Men, X Men like pre Excalibur, and then Mm. Excalibur Rachel. Fair. And I'd read the Excalibur stuff first because the other stuff. I wasn't really, I mean, whether Excalibur is fully child appropriate or not is probably a valid question, but (laughs) (laughs) I feel like Rachel in Excalibur is 
aspirational in so many ways. And in some ways, the book is really explicit about that in some of Kitty's comments early on, but that so often when people later were like, oh, there are no female power fantasies in comics. And I'm like, well, I don't know about you, but my female power fantasy growing up was definitely Rachel Summers. Like the issue when she just knocks out Juggernaut from issue three and you're just like that is it and she's also complicated and she's got the beautiful snark of the like i'll take my toast liquid please like but she so it's not like she's untouchable or unrelatable but she is that like she just has shit under control she takes the action of like okay brian i don't like your drinking i just dumped it in the water cool work good that's cool and so yeah as a kid growing up it was just like that i i can want to be that that feels very desirable and then going back and looking at the run of x-men and i certainly wouldn't say she's aspirational there but i feel like she's just incredibly relatable in in a lot of ways that I hadn't even thought about until see like you see a, I see a Claremont run post that's like oh and this is like analyzing Rachel's anxiety or analyzing Rachel's like gender stuff that's going on and I was like oh yet again that was just too formative for me to even like see it but yeah. like X-Men is so much about family and found family and like for her that is all of it like X-Men mm-hmm. is her family literally and yet at the same time because of the time displacement stuff they feel like family to her but she's continually struggling to feel like she's accepted by them yeah Yeah. and then in Excalibur she fully is and like it's just like it's not a question anymore and she's so integrated into that team and the way that she really felt like she always wanted in the X-Men run and that's just beautiful and I think similarly like there's a I I reread a chunk of the X-Men stuff to while thinking about getting ready for this and there's so much in there of just when she's struggling with her anger it's because there's so much so clearly wrong with the world and she wants to fucking do something about it and the X-Men keep telling her this is wrong you can't kill Celine this is wrong you can't do anything (laughs) to these bigots who are gonna kill Professor Xavier and Kitty you can't do anything and she's trying to listen to them but so furious about the world being so fucked up and that's so relatable and some of that isn't there in Excalibur but some of that also feels like it manifests in some of her just like direct action and like she's not feeling lost and overwhelmed as much in the same ways as much she still sometimes is but like that she's now in this space where it can be like oh Brian you're gonna be drunk fuck that I'm putting it in the river oh Brian's gonna tell me how to dress or the queen's gonna tell me how to dress and this no fuck that I'm gonna wear what I want to wear I'm gonna do what I want to do and y'all can go fuck yourselves like (laughs) it's just it's a very relatable and also aspirational evolution I think And then there's like, yeah, the queer stuff is very relatable. And I know y'all have talked and everybody like the Cerebro podcast is very strong on headcanning her as lesbian. And I don't have a problem with that. But I personally like the space for her to be not necessarily aromantic, but asexual in terms of, Hmm. to me, she's seeking out deep relationships, but potentially like queer platonic relationships or romantic relationships. I don't think for her it's about looking at somebody and being like, they're really hot. I Mm -hmm. think it's about just wanting that really deep, intense relationship with Kitty or whoever. And that's relatable to me as well. So Yeah, I like that spin on it because we do have a thing where we sometimes simplify the complexity of like romantic or sexual or platonic relationships. And these relationships are really complicated and they're really complicated within this fantasy space where you have telephone 
empaths, right? I mean, what does that mean for a character like Rachel with her powers, with her experience? And yeah, I definitely, you know, I want it to be as complex as it deserves to be, I guess is how I would put it. Yeah, I feel like there's there's just so many cases where you where whenever people's thoughts are intrusive to her, there's always somebody being like, oh my God, she's so hot. Or, oh my God, somebody else is so hot. And like, there's a scene from, not from this issue, from X-Men, so it's a little off, but like where she's in the Hellfire Club and she like, mm. like she's pretending to be a maid and she comes out of seeing something and she breaks down laughing because she's just their thoughts they're just so ridiculous like how is this a thing and so yeah i feel like as a if you're if you were a telepath you either have to be really into all that or else probably kind of not into the sexual attraction and just into the like being attracted to people for other ways of being attracted to people if that makes sense Mm-hmm. No, it does make sense. And I, there's so many powerful potentials and metaphors bound up in telepathy, like having to do with all of that stuff, I me mean, just having to do with identity in general, right? I mean, can I ask mm-hmm. you, I mean, to what extent do you see, because we've come up talking about trauma with Rachel so, so, so many times, and obviously she has such a deeply traumatic story and everything. To you, in what ways is that bound up in the character? And in what ways is that a productive aspect of the character? I mean, is kind of her survival, but you know, the fact that she continues to to struggle with those things are those aspects of the character important to you i mean part of me is like as a small child i found a lot (laughs) of stories about people that have been through horrible trauma very um i don't want to say relatable because i don't have horrible trauma in my life growing up but i for whatever reason though sometimes those stories about things feel really relatable i really appreciate that aspect of her character and i think when it's done well like a lot of her stuff feels very much she's hand like clearly she's handling or experiencing PTSD and then sometimes handling it better than others, which I appreciate when it's done well. And I think it's interesting. There's a couple of times when she like is dealing with gender stuff or comparing her stuff with her mom that she's like, is this what I would have been like if stuff had been normal? And I appreciate that. I feel like most of the time that is kind of left as a question, like that when you've experienced trauma, it's, it's so it's a part of you, but you also don't necessarily know, like, especially when it's something when you were young, like you don't know which parts of you are from that or aren't from that like everything's so mixed up you don't know who you would have been without it and I appreciate that aspect of her if that makes sense no that totally makes sense I mean how do you feel about the red costume that she wears in Excalibur do you like that costume for her does it relate to some of the things that you like about the character I mean honestly I think that goes back to the like it's too formative to have an opinion mm, like I don't yeah. it's pre having an opinion on things for me mm. um, as an adult I think I appreciate in some ways the rec- that it's a reclaiming for her and that in some ways the spikes I feel like are her claiming space especially in a context where there's more post whatever happened to her in Mojo World that we will never know about um yeah there's like people have more of an interest in her and that the spikes are in some ways a way to like create space still I like that idea of creating space because I mean we've talked about her untouchability at various times but I love that way that you put it well we will certainly have a chance to talk about her a little bit more do you want to get into our issue summary and then come back to the to the Megan and Rachel road trip and some of the important character development that happens to both of them here I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod we'd never try to decapitate you while you're brushing your teeth we promise but as always let's start our journey of self-discovery with a plot summary 
Excalibur number 46 opens on Earth, where Kailun and Princess Satnine are fighting their world's version of Excalibur, resurrected from under Necrom's control. Amid the battle, Princess Satnine makes a heroic sacrifice and is killed. Kailun throws his sword at Necrom, injuring him before cradling Satnine as she dies. But Necrom's not dead. Kailun follows him into a castle with a cross-dimensional portal and steps from Earth into Earth! 616 Earth to be precise, and even more precise, he steps into the rebuilt Excalibur lighthouse bathroom where Kurt Wagner is brushing his teeth while wearing nothing but a very small, very precarious towel. Kurt and Kailun fight. Kurt's quickly defeated, but because Kailun's enchanted blade forbids him from wounding those of pure spirit, his neck is saved. And so, Kailun relates his story. He is really Colin McKay, last seen in Excalibur number two, as you'll recall. <laughs> Finally, he's back. As you'll recall, he was saved from Vixen's goons by a widget portal. While many years have passed for Colin, only some months have passed in the 616. Kurt agrees to help Kailun find Necrom. Meanwhile, Megan and Rachel's quest to find Megan's parents has taken them to Germany's Black Forest. As they reach a clearing, they see a castle ahead of them, framed by a thunderstorm. Jokingly, Rachel says that all they need is Dracula and Frankenstein's monster. Then, from behind them, illuminated by a lightning flash, come Dracula and Frankenstein's monster. Dracula hypnotizes Megan, but Rachel gets away. She emerges from the trees and knocks out both Dracula and Frankenstein's monster. As the monsters fall, they turn into old men. In the distance, Megan spies a caravan, which she dashes toward despite Rachel's warning. Inside, they find a strange creature. The creature is from a race called the Nuri. It shows Rachel and Megan the spirit plane called the Ashra, a world of light and color. Rachel sees the phoenix force threaded through her body and the glowing true form of Megan. The Nuri explains that the magical creature they were tracking wasn't Megan. The rumors were about itself. The Nuri are an ancient magical race that has long since retreated to another earth. This Nuri came back for curiosity and was captured by a family after saving them from a blizzard. They enslaved it and gradually, jealousy destroyed the family, now reduced to the two brothers outside. The Nuri was responsible for granting their power. The Nuri says it's no coincidence that they met, and that their future shall reveal who is behind their meeting. Unfortunately, the Nuri is dying. Megan and Rachel take it outside so that it can see the stars a final time. Back at the lighthouse, Kurt and the end men are alarmed to feel large shockwaves emanating from the cave beneath the lighthouse. They rush down, where they find Widget trying to grow himself a body. Suddenly, there is a thud as a large creature looms out of purple smoke. Oh, I wonder who that could be. We'll find out next week. But in the meantime, <laughs> we have another dense and delightful Davis issue to talk about. And let's start with first impressions, starting with our honored guest. So Alexa, what's your first impression upon revisiting this issue so many years later? Anything that particularly stood out to you upon rereading? I think the big thing that stands out on rereading these is just like just seeing yeah. how layered and how packed the arcs oh, yeah. are. Yeah. Yeah. Just because, like, as a kid, I don't think about stuff as broken into issues, but then looking at it just as an issue, it was just like all of that, all of that happened. Just, I know. Yeah. This this one's a lot in here. <laughs> it really is. And yeah, I mean, I found that like revisiting each issue too. But anyway, sorry, Alexa, go ahead. I was just gonna say, like, as a kid, I definitely just really loved the aesthetics of the Megan and Rachel on the Ultra, and just the way that the color is used to make everything look so different especially in contrast to the night in the forest that they're in right before that yeah those pages are very striking i'm looking at them right now and i'm just like i loved how they did the sort of different pattern for rachel's body versus megan's body too there's just like a lot of care there given to that visual space um let's do first impressions from you andrew and mav and then get into some specifics start with you andrew first impressions after revisiting this issue so many so many years later i I like it like i think 
for me, one of the things I've been talking about a lot is like Davis's growth and confidence as a creator. And we see a lot of that here. And again, he's clearly making it his own. He's making strong choices. There's some I don't like. We'll maybe get to talk about it, but I don't like Megan's true form. But the thing that I found like weirdly lacking confidence is that opening scene, which to me has to be silent. And this could just be subjective, but I, I've never read a comic before and been so offended by the presence of the narrative captions because the no. story is told perfectly yeah. in the visuals. Like right, right up until he busts through the door, I, I would love for that to be silent. But again, I'm not Alan Davis. So me saying how Alan Davis should do Alan Davis is kind of a dick move. Well, no, I mean, we've talked in some of the previous episodes in this run that he sometimes overwrites stuff. Like, I think we said in a previous episode, he's writing like he doesn't trust his artist, which is weird. Yeah, because yeah, that, yeah that's, <laughs> that's where he should be the most confident. Yeah, that was me. And I, I stand by it. Okay. And to be fair, as someone who has written and drawn a comic book that, I mean, has drawn a comic book that he has written, I understand that. It is hard to trust your artist when you're the artist. It, it really is. I mean, I am not as good an artist as Alan Davis. I'm not. Uh, and I, and I don't pretend to be, but I get that there is a lack of confidence as, as an artist. There's a lack of, oh, they're not going to get this. It's very important that I, it, I, I get it. I get where he's coming from. That said, I love this book. In Alan Davis's long tenure as a, as a writer of Excalibur, you know, going back, this is the best he's done. Yes. Wow. I, I, so far, I feel like now he is coming into an understanding of narrative pacing. I get the point that you're making, Andrew, about this would have been better silently. The reason I think he did this is there is a lot of backstory and world building yeah. to what Earth is in these panels that you're not going to get anywhere else. This is where he builds that mythology that he took a lot of time to write down. I don't know if that he needs it. I don't. I mean, I, I think he needs to know it. I think it would have been okay without telling us until at this point, but I, I get why he did it. After that, though, once Colin slash Kylan comes through the door, everything in here in this story has an attention to detail and world building that I think is brilliant. And it, it's narratives with the imagery. On that page, when Colin bursts through and sees Kurt in, you know, in this panel that I'm sure we're only going to talk about for just this two seconds that I'm, <laughs> and, and we're not going to spend 45 minutes on because, you know, who wants to talk about Kurt in a towel? But not Kurt in a towel. What I think is brilliant, and this is, this is um, Davis working with Heisler, the um, letterer. Kurt says, mine got in a way in which mm -hmm. his word balloon is disrupted when Colin crashes through the door. And there's like a, there's a little bit of soapiness to his word balloon because Kurt is brushing his teeth. That is brilliant storytelling. And it's not an accident because it happens again on the next page and Kylan sends the sword at him. Everything about this, there are just little details like that throughout. I actually agree with Andrew on how Megan looks. I don't love her true form, but whatever. I think the interlude with um, Megan and the monsters is done well. I think Rachel's treated well. I think there are little details about how Widget works. I think that Colin's backstory is amazing. There's a little detail that I'll point out when we get there that I love about it, just about um, his world building. And this goes through the entire book that I think is super well done. So I'm all for the way Davis has grown as, grown as a writer in this issue. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I, I mean, I agree with you now that you've said it. I mean, I guess I hadn't thought about it that much. It's hard for me to judge individual issues of this arc in a way because, you know, as Alexa was saying, it's a big story that just is so connected in the issues in, in this arc that I've been having a hard time even thinking about them as individual issues. My first impression was that I did forget that this was the one with Kurt brushing his teeth in the bathroom and having the fight with Kylan and uh, <laughs> it was delightful because it took me right back to the first time I read this when... <laughs> 
the experience of reading Alan Davis's Excalibur when you're a particular fan of Nightcrawler and a particular fan of sexy Nightcrawler is just like these delightful surprises. You're reading this issue and they're going to have this fight and he's like, oh, let's have it in a bathroom with Kurt wearing a tiny towel. He's brushing his teeth. There's a few things that I particularly love about this Kurt bathroom scene. Like I love the contrast between the grandiosity of like Kylan's story and then the humorous domesticity of this moment with Kurt. That's just such a perfect contrast and at least the way the comic is printed like the floppy it's printed so that you go from the page of kylan going into the portal and then you have to flip over a page to get to the splash page of him busting on on kurt so that's really great because you do flip the page and then get that the title page splash page and it is a bit of a surprise and that's delightful i was thinking a lot about sort of alan davis's exploitation of both male and female bodies but he does so many interesting things with male bodies and we've talked about this on previous episodes And I was just trying to think about why and like what works about it. And for me, especially with Kurt as a character, sort of the combination of sexiness and humor is like a huge part of it because that's part of the accessibility of the character. But it's just also impressive that he like does these gestures. I mean, he's chosen to put Kurt here, not in a bathrobe, in the tiny towel, and then have him proceed through this sequence in which he's doing all of these poses that are teasing taboo exposure. I mean, the poses are very specific. I mean, he's like flipping upside down and stuff, and that towel is just managing to stay put. And... I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what else I want to say about it, except for maybe, I, yeah, you can talk about him, Mav, but um, yeah. just that I was thinking about the different ways that Brian is objectified versus how Kurt is objectified, and that's part of it, I think. But anyway, go ahead, Mav. Okay, so reading this, you're right. I agree with everything you said. And I want to add, before I get to the sexiness part, I want to add that on top of this, because it is very sexy, Kurt has a broken leg that you yeah, yeah, never yeah. lose track of <laughs> during that entire fight. Again, the, the idea of how the human body works and this goes into you know me as an artist and you know just my former career as a wrestler a body in motion trying to tell a story is complex and then trying to tell that story with one limb that is petrified at full extension like that that's just the complication that davis you know imposed on himself here so i just want you know props to him for this because there was no good reason for him to break kurt's leg other than the fact that he wanted to make his beginning of the book complicated so he so so he's made this you know more complex for himself and i think that's really good as far as the tabooness of the sexiness perfect placement the fact that um in the fourth panel on that second page of the fight where kurt is upside down and yes the towel is hanging such that like you said you know showing taboo exposure but what really makes it work is that the tail is poking out yeah yeah so so yes (laughs) penis just barely doesn't fall out because the tail is falling out which kind of gives you that impression anyway right that is always going to be the power of kurt's tail as far as you know uh freudian psychoanalysis go readings of of this character go but even to take away the literary phd brain part of mine that does freudian psychoanalysis on everything just as a man living on the planet earth who has showered before um (laughs) i have I have a bathroom. I have a pantry. I have like a, a linen closet outside my bathroom where we store towels. I am an adult human being in a relationship with another adult human being. We have several towels in, in, in that linen closet. 
Kurt has chosen this town. Oh, I know, I know. This is a this is a building where three women live. Actually, more right now because the tech net's living there uh, temporarily. I don't know. Maybe the tech net blew up the towels. Maybe, but <laughs> like they have they have towels that extend longer than this in this building. We have seen characters in this book wearing longer towels before. We've seen Kurt wearing a longer towel before. He chose to have one that he could fasten into a mini skirt rather than you know <laughs> you know like Kurt has chosen to wear one that is that short, you know, just for the implication that it might fall off at some point. And that was a decision that was made. So, like, if you're going to talk about the way in which Kurt's body, his maleness is, you know, gazed upon, I think that has to be referenced, like, in, in your analysis of it, because the way in which Brian is sexy is not by choice. Brian, for all oh, that he okay. is, yeah. is not visually performative. Brian just looks mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. He forgets that he looks like that. Brian has, you know, inferiority problems for a man that who looks like Schwarzenegger in his prime. You know, <laughs> like he he's got like one percent body fat, and he has and magic powers, and he feels like he's inferior all the time. Kurt is deciding to look like this and performing for nobody because he doesn't know the the readers there. Like he, as far as he knows, is only just hanging around in the bathroom. He could have been naked. He chose to put this towel on to look sexier. <laughs> I strongly feel that if Alan Davis like had his way and was just drawing the comic he wanted to draw without the comics code authority, he would have just been naked. <laughs> I think it's better with the towel. I know, I, mean, he, I know. Yeah, he could have been, but like the but the but it's sexier because I know, I know. Because I know that Anna reads this book and then just hopes that there's a, a wardrobe malfunction as you're reading it. I mean, obviously there won't be because why would you draw it? I mean, like it can't be in comics, but like it feels like you're like, oh, if he just if he screws up a little bit, that towel's gonna come off. That towel's gonna come off, and you're waiting for it. So I think the towel adds something. Yeah, it's true, and the cast is part of that, right? Because the awkwardness of the cast, the fact that he's fighting with a cane, and then we have so many like layers of little phallic symbolism things. I mean, he slices Kurt's cane in half, and then he's standing there with the cane sliced in half, and just there's a lot going on here in terms of the positioning of bodies and. The metaphors at play but um alexa i'll bring you back into this conversation a little bit to see if you had comments on this opening scene <laughs> was this was this a scene that you enjoyed yeah well and i i have also been reading excalibur with my now five-year-old and kylan is actually his absolute favorite character Aww. he asked for kylan action figure um four <laughs> and I was like, I don't know that that's a thing, dude. Like, this is a random character from the a relatively obscure 90s comic. And it turns out that, in fact, yes, they did make it. They made way too many. Nobody wanted to buy them. And so you can buy them for, like, eight bucks on eBay. So, really? Oh, my God. Awesome. Yes. So, oh, I'm Googling he, now. <laughs> and then we had to get another one when he turned five because he'd broken the head off of the one when he turned four. So we asked for it again. Oh, my um, God. But, yes, it is a thing you can get. So I love this scene. I actually think the only... <laughs> from the toilet's line oh that's a, that's so cool looking we'll, we'll, we'll tweet that out <laughs> my my main argument i loved andrew's suggestion of not having any word bubbles in the early part but the only reason i like them is because i think it helps the tone of kylan's story carry mm -hmm. through into the section in the bathroom oh that's true because yeah because the way that their phrase stays in that like epic Thing. It makes the bathroom feel like the alien place instead of having Kylan be just the, Ooh, the like okay. alien thing coming in. And then also just thinking about like the precarity of the towel and the cast and everything just making Kurt so much seem so much more vulnerable, which 
makes the like almost cutting his head off actually slightly scary at least when you're reading it with a small child like there's a half a second when you're like oh did we manage to have one of those like the good guy that didn't know the other good guy was a good guy just like actually did a problem and then you get the beautiful comedic beat of Kurt being like wait I still have a head Uh, the execution is really really good you've got that panel on the bottom where kurt's got the throat that clearly goes through the sword clearly goes through his throat and he's got these glazed eyes Mm -hmm. uh which could indicate surprise or that he just got murdered and you have to turn the page to find out and then um, um, as mentioned you get this like nice little comedic bit of him checking to see if his neck's still there and his reaction's so great too he's just like hey what's going on (laughs) because he's like he's freaked out when he almost gets his head chopped off but he's really able to roll with it and just kind (laughs) of have this conversation with Colin right after which again is just delightful I love that observation though Alexa about how it continues into the scene because that's part of what makes the humor of this scene work too because we're still talking in that epic mode over this very epic fight and yet it's a fight whose epicness is undercut by (laughs) Kurt's situation in terms of Davis's reasons for putting Kurt in the cast too I find that intriguing every time we get a scene like this because as Mav says like he's setting himself up with challenges and I mean Mm -hmm. he does a lot of sexy scenes with Kurt while Kurt is wearing the cast too and that intrigues me as a choice I don't know that I have sort of a final word on it per se but it does make me think of some of the conversations we had in earlier episodes surrounding Kurt dealing with disability and how it was important to him to continue to be beautiful while suffering from disability and navigating disability and we sort of see that played out a little bit here as well with the cast where he's healing he's hurt and yet he's still going to be him he is rocking that cast in the absolute most Kurt way possible and I really really love that and yeah it's just wonderful I don't know I again I could literally talk about the whole episode this but the whole episode but we will move on um okay let's talk about rachel and megan and we'll come back to some colin stuff at the end hopefully we have the continuation and the culmination of the rachel and megan road trip to search for megan's parents and this is some very important plot development that we have here but alexa i know that you have thoughts about this storyline we talked about it a little bit briefly before scheduling you on the pod so i'll just ask you to you what has this road trip been about i mean it's about finding Megan's parents, but is that all that it's about? I mean, I think for me, I love that it's a chance for both of these characters to get, I mean, this sounds trite, to get development in ways that they normally don't. And particularly because, like, for most of the book is, like, this the pairing, right, of Megan and Brian or Megan, Brian, and Kurt, and then Rachel and Kitty. And so moving Rachel and Megan out of those existing relationships feels like it really gives them both space and putting them in this really prosaic in some ways context like there's the whole part earlier in the arc about Rachel reflecting on how she really hasn't interacted with normal human beings yeah heartbreaking (laughs) like most of her life honestly not even just recently but ever and so I really love that that pushes them like and I don't know how much you all talked in the last episode about their conversation their earlier conversations but like they're in a situation where Megan calls out somebody for being like I'm not stupid I'm not a child and like Mm -hmm. that she wouldn't do that for most like most of the book 
you may or may not have people being appropriate to her, but like the fact that she's actively calling out and be like, no, be serious. And then Rachel's like, oh shit, that's right. I don't talk to anybody about anything. And so just that it pushes them into a space where they're opening up to each other. And that also means that then you as the reader get to see them do that. And that it's something for Megan just because Megan has a question and they're trying to find it out. It's not life or death, but it's also prioritizing her and her needs in a way that like doesn't happen otherwise really certainly before this yeah i mean there's sort of uh i don't want to say obvious because this sounds like it's a criticism because sometimes obvious things are good but that she has to go on this trip with rachel and it's important that she doesn't go on this trip with brian or or you know i couldn't even imagine her going on this trip with kurt that wouldn't be productive at all in the way that she needs it to be productive as much as i like kurt and megan but um what do you see as kind of the bond between rachel and megan alexa why do you think it's meaningful to pair up these two characters i mean it would be a very different story if it was if it was megan and kitty why why rachel for this trip and it's actually weird because reading this because again relative before relatively recently i hadn't read the stuff in between claremont davis and this Mm -hmm. so like they're like oh the rapport we share and i was like oh i'm assuming that this was established more substantially Mm -hmm. and then i went back and read it and was like no this is just like (laughs) this never made sense to me on any level outside of this storyline to be honest like they keep saying we have this rapport we have this thing in common we did this random thing where we like merged in new york for 10 seconds it was never explained and you hated it and i hated it (laughs) this is true then they hated it right so like i think that they're a good fit because they are better at treating each other like humans than the others in okay, some like yeah. or at least they don't i'm not saying that the others don't but like i don't think that there are particularly certainly not in this and in general examples of rachel treating megan like a child or like she's simple as she said when she wasn't telling her stuff she wouldn't have told kitty that she wouldn't have told kurt that it would have she wouldn't have told anybody else either and similarly like megan didn't know rachel when she was a hot mess on the x-men so she doesn't have some of the baggage that kitty and kurt have and she doesn't i mean obviously rachel and brian have an interesting relationship but it is (laughs) there's there's a lot of brian trying to tell her what to do and her being like yeah that's that's not going to happen so that's not an issue between megan and rachel i think there's just space for them to be straightforward with each other in ways that other people have trouble being with them how do you feel about because we talked about this in the previous episode that we had kind of mixed feelings about it about rachel suppressing the phoenix force for this road trip and i was wondering how you felt about that choice like does that come across as an empowering choice i mean how the story tells us we're supposed to read it is that she does this so she can restore her memories and then she can become a more complete self like did that ring true to you that narrative choice i appreciated it at the time part of it is i think that she's not with a male character and i feel like she doesn't feel weakened like when she gets knocked out here she comes back and punches them in the face very literally Mm -hmm. Um, it's great the punch is like rendered really well too like we see her like rippling muscles and it's a powerful punch it's great the connecting the phoenix force to her memories and and i guess and the flip side of that is that when we see her and it's like the phoenix force is still in her Mm -hmm. and in her every cell and so it's not like she lost it it's not like it's gone it's a way to control it if she's controlling how much it's controlling her okay i like that um the memory thing doesn't make any sense because she didn't have any issues with her memory until Mojoverse. So why it's connected with the Phoenix, and I know it gets touched on later, and it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> that's why I went back and reread stuff because I was like, am I missing something? Was she? No, nothing, nothing. Traumatic memories, yes. 
memory holes, only post mojo. Just to add contrast to what Alexa's saying, um, when Jean dies on the moon, she specifically says that she could suppress the phoenix, but she doesn't want to live like that. It would be too hard, too constant. So seeing Rachel do it successfully here, uh, again, showcases this idea of Rachel not as a reiteration of the phoenix, but as an evolution of the phoenix, which I think is really important to her character connecting throughout like all earlier Excalibur and X-Men continuity. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah, because I love I love that presentation of Rachel as you know the second generation. You know that's gonna is very traumatized by the previous generation, but also has the potential to be a reparative figure. Anyway, Mav, go ahead. Yeah, this is this is where I was talking about. I think where I feel like Davis comes into his own in this issue. I've said in the last couple episodes, I don't like the choice to repress the Phoenix Force for exactly the reason Alexa just said. I don't know why. Like, I, I don't know why she does it. It doesn't make sense. The memory issues that Alexa is talking about don't really come back. Like, it, they don't come from anywhere. I think Davis is building on a canon that only exists in Alan Davis's head. And, like, I want Alan Davis to be able to go... I, mean, I, I talk about this a lot. If you are the writer of record on a book, you're not doing a fill-in issue. These are your toys to play with. I want you to be able to grow and explore yeah. your own storylines. So I do not want Alan Davis beholden to the world of Chris Claremont. I don't. But I need to know how you got there. I don't. I don't know why it works. When when she first did it, she's like, oh, I feel really good about these random people that I've never heard of, so I'm going to turn off my cosmic power. This is how people get trapped. Do you want to be attacked <laughs> by, by aliens? Because that's how people get attacked by aliens. And she knows this, right? So like, it, it was a weird choice then. It was a weird choice last issue where she's telling Megan, oh yeah, I, I felt really good for the last 10 uh, days of not doing this. And I, so I don't know why it works. And this is going to go on for a while, so I'm trying to like not go too far into the future. Of I don't know why it works then. I don't know why it's working here. Here we learn. I read a little different than Alexa does. I don't think that Rachel is tapping into the Phoenix Force. I think Rachel has her own mutant powers of telepathy and telekinesis, and she has Phoenix powers of tele telepathy and telekinesis, and she's relying on the weaker natural power here. The way Jean does when she's, I mean, Jean's weakened power still makes her the most powerful um, <laughs> tele telekinetic on Earth or something like that. I think she's doing that, and I'm fine with it. I had to add headcanon in order to make that happen. And if Alan's going to be in the new writer of record, I need him to give me a little more in order to get in order to get me to where I understand it. That said, I stand by this is the best he's done so far. I'm nitpicking now because that's this show. Yeah. And we and we nitpick, but like it doesn't really bother me the way other things do. like when Rachel turned off her powers two issues ago, that bugged me. Here I'm like, okay, I'm accepting that she can do this. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that she's done it in the context of this road trip with Ray with um Megan. And it seemed more natural than her discussion last issue where she's like oh yeah we could fly but we're not going to for reasons that seems stilted this seems like okay they've made these decisions and, and they're natural and i i'm willing to go with them because the writer wants me to and that's the first time i felt that way since he took over the book huh. i mean that's funny i i have different mileage 
on the turning off the powers with the family thing, which I liked a lot more than you do, Mav, in the sense yeah. that it worked for me on a level of, because she specifically was like, I'm a threat to these people, like with these powers. And, you know, making herself vulnerable was meaningful to me in that moment. It was like, mm -hmm. it meant a certain thing in terms of, I am this very different person that yeah. is within this normal space. And how am I going to kind of navigate that? And it's a very complicated decision to me on that level. So it works for me a little bit more than it works for you, but I totally yeah. think your criticism is valid. Well, it's interesting because I don't read it as her completely turning them off. I mean, I think mm -hmm. she doesn't, because as you said, she's a telepath and a telekinetic, so it can be hard to tell where exactly Phoenix, Phoenix Force ends and begins. Mm -hmm. But I read that scene, it had become her default as Phoenix to basically have the Phoenix Force running constant surveillance on everyone in an X foot radius. Mm-hmm. So she right. wasn't consciously aware of it, but as a default, Phoenix Force, her telepathy through that is like monitoring everybody's thoughts, everybody's whatever, in case something happens. And that basically that web of surveillance that had kind of maybe even expanded without her thinking about it as her default is what she shut off. So that it's more like sucking it down and closing it down than turning it mm. off. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I like that. Um, and it would be great if he explained that to why, us. Well, to me, that's what the that's to yeah. me that's what the visual means on page yeah. twenty two, right? Okay. That's the, like enough. her being like, I thought I shut it off, but really I just like tamped it down in this way that now it's focused okay. to me instead of like invading everybody else's space, which to me works better. If I read it the way you were reading it, it would probably bother me more. Yeah, and, and it's fair. I mean, like I think that that is a fair reading of it, especially since uh, every once in a while I like to go back in time to you know me reading this as you know I guess nineteen ninety one. I guess I'm. 17 now and me reading it then and having caring about continuity way more than i do now at 47 which is not at all one of the weird things about rachel as a character um, as she exists is in continuity still being written by claremont though not his decision rachel is the daughter of phoenix and scott summers in her reality however gene gray in 616 was never phoenix so that is that is something that's happening right then and there so there's a this is supporting alexa's reading there is a point at which rachel can't turn off the phoenix force because for her the phoenix force is part of her genetic makeup in a way that it wasn't for gene gene inherited the phoenix force in in rachel's reality whereas rachel is a child rachel can no more turn off the phoenix force than you can turn off any other part of your brain because it's not a power she's using it's a power that is part of her and that's written into the comics at that point it's more complicated than that in 2021 where rachel has no phoenix at all but it's i think that's what i think davis is trying to work with what he was given and that is part of how it works so i so that supports alexa's reading kind of well, can we talk about the Megan thing a little bit? And we can talk about its mm -hmm. connection to, to Rachel and kind of the revelations that they have on this spirit plane and stuff. And we got to talk about <laughs> race and representation here again a little bit because this is, I don't even know what to do with this. This is kind of a whole minefield. But um, maybe I'll take give it to you first, Andrew, because you already mentioned that you have sort of issues with sort of the Megan's true form thing and, and everything. So I'll kind of let you approach that from whatever direction you would like. Again, <laughs> I mean, do we want to talk? talk about the Nuri and the portrayal of 
this Romani family and how this is affecting our understanding of Megan as a character. I don't even know which question I want to ask Andrew. I'm, I'm throwing, I'm throwing it, I'm throwing the ball to you. To, Good luck. To make <laughs> yep. Fix it, fix it, Andrew. Okay, I, I connected to the previous question, the idea of like what Rachel and Megan share together. I, I think of the two members, sorry, of the entire team of Excalibur, the thing that binds them is they both have this fractured and traumatic past. Uh, they're both disconnected to it or from it. And, and you could argue Kurt in there as well. And Kurt also has the element of monstrosity. Um, but where Kurt knows what it's like to be treated like a monster, Megan and Rachel both know what it's like to be a monster. Do you know what I mean? They've both yeah. done monstrous yeah. things. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I um, see so I, I think Davis is surfacing monstrosity very directly in this issue we're in a german forest so like grim brothers uh, and we have frankenstein and dracula show up uh so so again monstrosity is in play as part of their search for their respective pasts for their respective identities trying to figure out who they are there's a lot of like really cool kind of um, as mav was saying earlier details here in the narrative that are that are intersecting in meaningful ways so to have megan's true form be i don't even know what to describe it like like, like a hyperbolic fantasy barbie doll i find that really disheartening <laughs> in a narrative that was engaging with monstrosity the way that i think the story was set up to do Mm -hmm. um i mean her hair is more cascading and and fountainy and she's taller and thinner more of an hourglass waist that's i don't know to me that undersells a lot of what megan had the potential to symbolize which is you know beauty standards yeah so so to me it was going really 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 well until that point uh, and then i got kind of disheartened uh, by the representation we have here and as i said because those two characters are interlinked it doesn't say good things for rachel either um to have megan's story unfold the way that it unfolds question for you would you have rathered her be classically ugly or just classically not human because those are those are different things her natural form could have been withered like the i can't pronounce it either the nuri guy like he she could have been a withered wrinkly this is what your natural form is and then when megan first she first sees him with her uh, megan sight um she says <laughs> she says he's beautiful right so you could do that or you could just have her be non-humanoid entirely and the reason i think right. this matters is because if you make her ugly in a normative sense right if you make her wrinkly or old looking i think you end up with a situation where the reader is going to uh there's the point where she changes back into barbie doll you know brian fantasy megan on page 27 yeah and because that's how people if, know her. She, right because that's how people know her and it's like no it's because that's how brian knows you and you want to have yep. sex again one day because brian's not going to be with you if you look like withered old man dude and you know that so there, I think if they'd made her ugly, it would read like that. If they'd made her non-humanoid, I think maybe you can get away with that. But so much of the idea of Megan is is tied up in this, and she is beautiful in any way that I don't I don't know where the line is, right? Like, uh, yeah. and given where I know where the story's going with Megan, I'm not sure Davis entirely has it nailed down to to the more interesting way that you're positing, <laughs> you know, like like she is still a beautiful fairy princess and that's what that, her true form is you were a beautiful fairy princess all along and 
okay. I guess. I think for me, one of the ways that, and I, I hate to just do that thing where I'm like rewriting the story because that's such a dick thing to do, but this is specific. This, yeah, I know. But this, this is specifically in this scene, Rachel looking at Megan. So there's a way that you could read yeah, this, that reflective. this is Rachel's vision of Megan, right? But that doesn't work unless we have another vision of Megan. <sighs> Yeah, but it, it's rough because of the fundamental mechanics. You are using conventional yeah. beauty as mm-hmm. the vehicle for a metaphor of spiritual beauty, right? Yeah, I know. And there's like that—that's a really screwed up way to do it. And we're in a visual medium, so like he's got to draw something to represent spiritual beauty. He could just made her alive. I mean, it's yeah. the fact that the fact that the Nuri says, "And this is your true form," not engaged by how other people see like he he tells her that so i think the only way to read this is this is what megan really looks like i i don't see yeah. how she do that which it's a it's a choice i mean I, i'm not as hard on it as andrew is but it it is definitely a choice that i okay i will protect megan right but I, well, here, here's the here's the alternative right make her look like body bag you know what i mean like like body bag is not implicitly ugly but he is insectoid he is just not human i think i can objectively as possible it's still gonna be a subjective standard of beauty but i can objectively say that i think body bag is more attractive and insectoid <laughs> creature than the brood are right yeah. that's yeah. And, and 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 i think that like i mean i'm, I'm being weird right but i like i no, think that's... body bag's hotter than the brood yeah hot take <laughs> you're you're well you're welcome for our twitter feed anna <laughs> but but uh, but i think you could have done that i think you could have done well, something yeah. there's like there's a that. there's attractive redeemable monsters and unattractive irredeemable monsters because we yes. want certain monsters to be humanized and not right yeah. <laughs> i'm kind of I'm all about sure this now <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it probably does but um but yeah it's complicated right because it's is a bit one of those situations where all of the choices are bad but it is very hard for me to read this story and not read it as they're coming up with a justification for maintaining megan with the look that she had because it's like well yeah. your beautiful inner self is just an exaggeration of what you currently look like therefore your image of brian actually is your true self therefore when you say this line about this is how i choose to be it's i say this a lot but you know it's having your cake and eating it too because she's not representing as her the form is a little bit monstrous in its excess and like you know she wouldn't represent that way just walking around she would attract so much attention it would be perceived as excessive so she's taking it down a notch to represent as megan as we usually know her so it's trying to be like look she is making a choice here this is the choice to be slightly uglier yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's how brian sees her right no so i know that i know that i'm saying i'm saying yeah. that's like what the comic is trying to sell us oh, yeah, on yeah, yeah. and like it doesn't it's really what work megan says. yeah because it's what she says but there's a difference between stating agency and showing agency right right mm-hmm. do, do you have do you have thoughts on this dynamic alexa like what what was your kind of mileage on the, on this megan transformation we haven't talked about the spiritual realm stuff or any of that stuff either uh which we which we should talk about we should talk about the nuri a little bit yeah i mean i i think it was always weird to me when it turns back to the real world that that was supposed to be what she looked like what always sticks in my head is the picture on 23 and that the way that the color and the lights are i assume that she looks less human than it kind of seems like she is like to me it's like her eyes are kind of funky her ears are now pointy and everything is just sparkly and light and since she'd been talking about the nuri is so beautiful with the lights like i think i always thought of it as something where like the art can't fully capture but everything is spiritual but then the fact that she looks like anything at all when they change back and that there's something to change 
back from, even though she looks almost identical on that, like that panel on page 27. She's like, you changed back. A picture that looks almost exactly the same, but is slightly taller and blue because it's no longer true. I don't know. I kind of hate the idea that she has a true form. Like, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. she's been a shapeshifter her whole life. Like, the idea that there is some kind of static truth she could go back to doesn't really make any sense to me so i don't know that there is a good answer but i almost mm. wish the answer was this is not a question that makes sense to ask yeah <laughs> one of our longtime listeners asked us about deep space nine on twitter the other day and it does make me think about the scene in deep space nine where odo shows kira his true form and his true form is just light you know they don't give him a body in that form and there's this really wonderful scene where he becomes sort of pure light and he's kind of raining down on her and she's got this it is supposed to be an orgiastic face um, as he's kind of doing that. And to me, that was a creative way to handle it, and especially a way that you can handle it within the confines of a, you know, PG-13 television show in the 90s, in which you're not really going to be able to go further than that with the shapeshifter sex, so this is what you can do, right? And to me, that's an elegant way of kind of handling that, where you're keeping a lot of ambiguities open, and this is shutting down some ambiguities about Megan yeah. in ways that I think are frustrating, I guess. And I totally take your point, Alexa, that again, there'd be another way of visualizing this where it would be there wasn't a true form and maybe the form keeps shifting and the form is not stable and it's not that it is this one form, right? And that would have maintained at least some of that ambiguity and I think I would have found that a little bit more satisfying personally. I mean, how do we, again, I keep saying that we should talk about sort of the Nuri and, and this Romani family here, but um, I mean, how does this relate to some of the conversations that we had back in our Excalibur 44 issue where we talked about race and representation and Megan and sort of her connections to, to her Romani past and whether it made sense to read her within that context or not. Like here, and I, I think the family is supposed to be a Romani family and they're depicted exclusively within a context of like greed and manipulation and evil and mysticism <laughs> yeah mysticism and <laughs> yeah i don't think they're characters they're yeah. fine it, yeah. it doesn't <laughs> i mean this one doesn't bother me as much as some of them because i don't think they matter they're not a romani family they're two old guys who are using the alien that they've captured to become Dracula and Frankenstein. They are a plot device in their natural form. They're on like, you know, three panels, right? Like I get the point that you're making. I don't think their appearance changes substantively if they were just two random British dudes. Like they're a Romani family because Megan's backstory says that they have to be, right? Like I don't think anything happens in this particular story. I'm being very specific to this issue, right? Like I, I realize they were they have been on a on a quest for your gypsy heritage for the entire, you know, last three issues. But once they find these two random dudes, they're two dudes with a trailer who have captured an alien, right? Nothing is made of their of her heritage from this story at all. And I don't think anything needs to be. I don't think Davis is thinking about it about it. And yes, I get the tie up, you know, of course I get the tie up of, you know, this is a white man writing about race and of course he doesn't care. But at some point, I feel like I have to give the writer some space to tell a story and I cannot force him to, to connect with an issue that he does not understand against his will. You know, you know, like, like I'd rather he ignore, ignore the issue than treat it badly. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And I think that that's what, I think he's doing his best to ignore it here. So if anything, the more questionable problem is how the Nuri is drawn like an aboriginal parody in many ways like that's yeah. more of a problem 
than the fact that the single tier panel perhaps yeah yeah it it, that's more of a problem to me than the the fact that and again i think he's trying to be respectful it's 1991 you know this is where this is where we're at to me that's more problematic than anything that these two balding old white dudes do i guess where i'm coming at it from though is that we talked in 44 about a tentative sort of complexification of Mm -hmm. romani identity in terms of megan's relationship to that you know that it wasn't necessarily as stereotyped as it could have been because it could have been worse but here i guess what bothers me about it is the way that it's separating megan from that part of her heritage because it's making it very clear that they're the villains and megan is something else and she's not connected to that and that bothers me a little bit you think they're saying that about the romani or think they're saying it about these two old dudes see that was my thing like i i have no problem reading it about just joe and bob the old guys here that's how i read this i mean i feel like the part that's an issue for me is the stuff on the top of page 25 like if it was just the two old dudes Mm. that i'm fine with the that first panel especially but in some ways even the choice of like the bracelet and the nails and how they're done for the wife as she's getting sloan sloan whatever the past verb of that (laughs) (laughs) um Mm -hmm. is unnecessarily over like i am okay with reading it as just like these are the people that happen to find him and humans kind of suck and are selfish and evil. Yeah. And I think that's how I read it when I was a kid. I just wish the art was done differently for those panels, mm-hmm. even if the story yeah. was the same. Sure. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. Uh, I think, honestly, I, I think we've discussed it more than we need to. It's certainly more than he thought about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And as Mav says, we can either try to defend it, but I don't think we can, or we can just kind of go with it because Davis is doing something racist and tropey, which is, I don't know, just kind of going to happen. For me, the maybe the element of the nerdy that, that bothered me even more was just kind of how lazy it is as a plot device. The idea of this thing that has exposition that will conveniently die so it's not awkward around your character arc thereafter. Yeah. <laughs> that's, Classic. that's not great writing. He is the epitome. I mean, this is, oh, I get to be literary and, and professorial here. He is the epitome <laughs> of the of the magical Negro trope, right? Like he is a magical Negro that has been dropped into the storyline in order to explain the exposition with his magical powers, his right. literal magical powers, and then die and get out of the way so, so that the story can progress. That's what he does. Yes, it's lazy and tropey. I'm not excusing it, which is what you, what Andrew just said. I'm not no. excusing it. We, we I'm saying it, we move on, right? I'm, it's 1991. This is what he's got. One thing about the Nuri that I did just want to mention is that, and I wasn't sure. I mean, I'm assuming this is where Davis got the name from, because um, Davis did make up these characters. Um, the Nuri had previously appeared in a Wolverine issue that he wrote and drew, and this is actually the second appearance. Oh yeah. Yeah, in Bloodlust. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So this is Davis did create this concept, but um, so I did the due diligence of of Wikipediaing it. (laughs) (laughs) Good researcher. Um, no, not that, but the, the Nuri name. And um, mm-hmm. according to Herodotus and according to Wikipedia, the Nuri were the <laughs> furthest tribe beyond the Scythian farmers along the course of the river Hypanis. And there's an interesting connection to Megan. Herodotus also recounts the tale that once a year, each of the Nuri becomes a wolf a few days before returning to their previous form. And Her- Herodotus thinks it's not a true story, but that people certainly believe that it is true. And I was wondering if there was any reason that he chose that because of the connection to Megan and her wolf form, but that doesn't come up here, so it's not super relevant. But if that is about it, I would mention it. And if we do have scholars of Greek history, they can certainly tell us more about it. 
Um, let's move to some final thoughts. I wanted to talk a little bit about Colin and we didn't, but we're like running out of time. So if someone wants to introduce it in their final thoughts, they certainly can, but I'll give everybody a chance to touch on something that we haven't touched on yet. And I don't know, I'll send it to you first, Mav. Final thoughts, stuff that we didn't get a chance to touch on. They're both quick and they're Colin adjacent. The first is a rare mistake by Glennis Oliver that changes, and I mean rare, not just in this, this issue, I mean across the 40-year career of Glennis Oliver, um, I, I think. The tech net are colored in traditional X-Men costume colors here instead of in, in Nightcrawler costume colors, which is odd and changes the entire context of the two pages of the story that they appear on. Yes, mm -hmm. I'm aware that Kurt's costume is very derivative of the classic X-Men costume. It's always been, but like actually coloring them in the blue and yellow as a, or black, you know, as opposed to the black and red changes the context of how I think that we're supposed to read them that was established last issue. It's a mistake because they go back to it next issue. Either you have to believe that while training in the lighthouse, they die X-Men derivation <laughs> costumes instead of Nightcrawler in men costumes mm -hmm. or it's a mistake. Either way, it comes across as awkward and weird to me, and it did in 1991. So, like, I like I recall this, and it was like, ooh, why, why did that happen? The other thing that, you know, that actually touches, you know, more directly on Colin is Davis is playing a little tight with the timeline here for me, in that Kurt explicitly says that, you know, Barely oh, yeah, you've been gone about a year, and I'm like, eh, that's that's kind of tight. You know, we had a, you're trying to tell me that in the time Time that Colin's been gone for one year, you have moved into the lighthouse, become a team with Excalibur, dealt with Inferno, dealt with the cross time caper. Acts of vengeance has happened, which is a like like a lot of, a lot of Marvel history Prometheum has happened. Exchange. Yeah, Promethean Exchange. Like, literally, a lot has gone on in this year that it just feels... I mean, I get that Marvel Times compressed. It feels like he's compressing it a little much. I think that a better writer, a more advanced comic writer would have just avoided giving a timeline reference there. A super advanced time comic writer like like Claremont would have said two years and tried to make it make sense. <laughs> and which would have been great for Claremont, but like every other writer in Marvel would have ignored it. So like which is which is a thing because you know there is a clear timeline progression and we talked about it with Kitty's age that happens through the early X-Men books through Excalibur. He's trying to do what Claremont does and he's not good at it yet. Like it just that doesn't make sense and i mean kitty has had two birthdays over the course of excalibur which we have talked about and yet colin's been gone a year so i don't know yeah it worked for me in terms of time and superhero comics being messed up and anyway but whatever it's a fair criticism of, he should of he should have just said nothing he should have just not not done it it would have been yeah. well he could have just said it's not gonna yeah well i was gonna say it's gonna make less sense moving forward we are very much moving away from you know as as we get through the davis years and as we end the davis years linear time is irrelevant <laughs> so andrew final thoughts uh yeah kylan and jason again um i've been hard on davis in this episode which is not fair at all um because he's doing a lot of really great stuff as i said and one of the things he's doing really really well 
well is like callbacks and connecting different stuff and i I love the kurt callback where kylan says that we heard Mm -hmm. this legend of a blue demon who Mm -hmm. showed up in court uttered a profanity and then disappeared Mm -hmm. which was like 30 issues ago and was a nothing scene yeah that's a good callback that's a callback done right there's another one too that i just want to add i said i said i'd mention it at the same time over the queen uh, queen aisha's head that's dr strange's window that's such a tiny little detail the 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 sigil that she uses on her chest on satin's chest and above their head that is the sanctum sanctorum window and a symbol of dr strange that like matters in their world so little details like that are this is where he is a brilliant visual storyteller even if he doesn't trust himself Oh, yeah, that's nice. I mean, the thing that I was going to point out, which takes us right back to the conversation at the beginning of the episode, was that we talked so much about the Kurt exploitation in the bathroom scene, and then we didn't talk about Kylan in that context. And I just thought it was interesting that we didn't, and partly that's just because I'm here and I always want to talk about Nightcrawler, I get it. But because it came up on a previous episode about sort of different meanings of fur on different characters and different ways different characters are objectified. And maybe it's something that we come back to. I mean, Kylan is also like a muscly, furry, sexy guy wearing you know (laughs) a sort of sexy costume um he's not wearing a shirt right and yet he's not objectified in the same way that kurt is i would argue in that bathroom scene i mean kurt's the one that's doing the certain poses kurt's the one in the foreground kurt's the one whose body is put on display there and it just struck me as an interesting choice and maybe it's something that we can come back to as we continue thinking about the way bodies are displayed as we often do on this podcast alexa um anything that you wanted to talk about we didn't get a chance to talk about I'm sure there's many things, but pick your favorites. I guess I would say two small Kylon things. One is another, like the visual detail of the fact that his insignia, and actually my son pointed out, it's not just the insignia on his chest, but also mm-hmm. on his knee pads mm-hmm. is the widget symbol. Yeah. Which I loved as a like thing that you certainly, I never picked up on before getting to this point. But then when he's like, it's widget. And then you're like, oh, it really is. And it has been since we started. And then I just really enjoy the, the contrast between goofiness and super competent seriousness that is Kylan's sort of characterization. Yeah. Like even up to page 29 when he's like, you should not make fun of Widget. He is Oh, that was adorable. <laughs> he's just, it's so cute and also he's so serious. Seven. And mm-hmm. just, yeah. yeah, like on some level he's still a seven-year-old, which probably also goes back to the maybe not objectifying him because in some yeah, ways he does yeah. feel like a kid that's true all right i'm doing a very brief letter and then we'll and then we'll say our goodbyes so this month's letters page is just full of <laughs> thank you thank you for having alan davis back letters uh and i'll read one of my favorite ones from <laughs> well i'll read who it's from after i read the letter actually dear sword strokes joy and rapture oh happy day kalu Kalei davis is back right where he belongs thank you thank you thank you our prayers have been answered and every single sentence of that is accompanied by three exclamation marks (laughs) (laughs) and this is from the alan davis groupie group tabitha r jones president address withheld (laughs) i enjoyed that little letter marilyn if only you're at my side my old friend to give me courage there are no war tricks that will fool Mordred and Morgana. More than I ever did, I need you now. Where are you, Merlin? If only you could 
See me. Wield Excalibur. Once more. I think we will wrap things up there. Alexa, thank you dearly, dearly, dearly for joining us. Um, I know you've been listening since the beginning and I was so intrigued by your Rachel thoughts and I'm so happy we finally mm. got a chance to properly chat with you about her. Before we go though, if you would like people to find you online, feel free to drop your handle. And if there's any work or causes or anything else you want to spotlight, now's the time to do so. Yeah, I guess I am on Twitter at Alexa Lee Hassan, all one word. And honestly, yeah, I don't, the only relevant work that I did was a, teacher op-ed in the sun times which is apparently no longer on their website so it is vanished into the internet ether it was just a little like look you can teach kids diversity with comics i gave my students like comics and they're reading and discussing them and it's cool but yeah my dad was mentioned it when i was like i haven't done anything relevant and i didn't even remember what he was talking about and then yeah looking on their website it is no longer there if you want to send it to us we could host it for you we can talk about that after (laughs) yes thank you so much for having me i love the pod so much and this was just a fabulous experience to get to do oh i'm so glad oh even like hearing about you getting the excalibur stories read to you i was just like so unbelievably envious not having encountered this series until quite a bit later in my life but yeah thank you so so much again next in one week's time we'll be discussing excalibur 47 come one come all to the ugly bug-eyed monster ball in which there are reunions and the promise of new unions stay tuned in the meantime if you liked what you heard please follow us like and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it don't forget to check out our fabulous youtube videos which we've done for many of our episodes which you can find via our website or the box podcast youtube channel as always if you want to chat with us a bit Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, for another productive journey. Thank you, Alexa, for shepherding us to the right places. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. Now we are done.